You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The big news out of Boston kind of puts me in an awkward position. Seems someone, some asshole or assholes, is holding a straight pride parade. The news about the straight pride parade was so big, Bill Maher actually talked about it at the top of his show on Friday. And he did a really good job, Bill Maher did, of explaining why straight pride parades aren't actually a thing. Uh, This is true. In Boston, a group of guys uh, got together. They want to have a straight pride parade. (laughs) This is coming from a group called Super Happy Fun America. I cannot think of a gayer name. That's true. And, but, you know, I always want to say to people like this, you know, gay pride is, you know, a response to being shamed. How can you really have a straight pride because no one has ever shamed you? You know, it's like wanting a welcome home party when you've never left the couch. Uh, People don't march in queer pride parades because being queer all by itself is an accomplishment. Queerness is pretty much randomly distributed through populations. No, what matters, what people take pride in, is what they've managed to do with their queerness or about their queerness, despite the shame, the hostility, the violence, the judgment, the religious condemnation. Real violence is done to queers by our families, by our churches, by our governments. We're told this neutral fact about us is sick and wrong and not something we should ever tell anyone about ever. And yet... We managed to find each other, and we managed to find it within ourselves to reject the shame and the fear, and despite the violence, live openly. I'm not proud of being just gay. Any idiot can get a dick in his mouth. I'm proud of the gay men who came before me and struggled to make the world a better place for the gay men coming after them, and I've tried to do my part to make the world a better place for the gay men, for all the queers who are coming after me. And that's what I'm proud of. That's what pride is about. And this year in particular, queers are marching to mark how far we've come. It is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Pride celebrations all over the world are held in the last weekend of June or close to it to commemorate the riots outside a seedy gay bar in New York City after the police raided the place and began to rough up the trans women, street kids, dykes, hustlers, and gay men they found inside. These riots, the Stonewall riots, didn't mark the start of an organized movement to recognize and fight for the rights of sexual minorities, but they sparked an explosion in the kind of in-your-face, unapologetic, radical activism that would ultimately make the queer rights movement, despite recent setbacks at the hands of the Trump administration, one of the most successful movements for social justice over the last hundred years. Okay, so for these people organizing the straight pride parade in Boston, what are you other than straight, which just like being gay all by itself, not an accomplishment, not an achievement, particularly when you didn't have to stare down the stigma and shame and find your way out of the straight closet. You were presumed to be straight and lucky enough that default setting was correct. So you want to take pride? What have you done to make the world a better place? For yourself and other straight people. I can think of a few things. Straight men, and it's straight men organizing the straight pride parade in Boston. I can think of a few things straight men could do to make the world a better place for their people. They could fight rape culture. They could fight for comprehensive sex education. 
They could fight for access to free and effective birth control. They could fight to defend a woman's right to have an abortion, a choice that benefits as many men as it does women. They could fight for cleaner air and cleaner water, you know, for the future, for all the kids they're going to have and bring into the world as a direct result of all that awesome straight sex. They could fight for action on climate change for the same reason. Think of your kids, breeders, but they're not doing any of that. Literally, their slogan for the straight pride parade is, we are here, we are not queer. Not about what they're doing, not about who they are. It's about what they're not doing. We're here and we are not sucking dicks and we don't want to suck dicks. Really? We don't want to? Why are you smirking? And it's about what they're not, which is gay, which is an easy thing not to be. 95% of everyone isn't. Earlier I said this whole straight pride parade thing kind of puts me in an awkward position. And that's because whenever someone has said to me in the past, whenever some huffy straight person has come up to me and said, why do you need to have pride parades? You don't see us marching around in our underpants and dancing on go-go trucks in the street. We don't have straight pride parades. My answer has always been, I think you need a straight pride parade. I think there should be straight pride parades. And I kind of think there is one. It's called Halloween which I've redubbed heteroween. It's when straight people march around in public in sexy, sexy this and that costumes and shake their asses. Not on trucks going down the middle of the street, but on sidewalks and on bars. Sexuality needs a public expression. And because we walk around so bottled up with our sexualities so bottled up, sometimes we need a festival, a moment, a place in public where we can be our sexual selves. I think straight people need that moment too. Gay people have built that moment into pride. It is not the only thing pride is about. Pride is about so much more than go-go boys and hot pants on trucks. But it's also about that. And it's an important part of it. And it's the part I think straight people should borrow. It's the part that a straight pride parade should be about. That kind of parade for straight people, I can get behind. That kind of parade for straight people, we already have. In New Orleans, it's called Mardi Gras, and we need more Mardi Gras in every city. Not straight pride parades, but big public events where straight people can be just as diverse, just as sexual, just as messy, just as half-dressed in public as queer people can be, but not all of them are at Pride. All right, coming up on today's show, it is the SM show. All BDSM questions all the time. Mistress Matisse is my guest on the micro version, and there's more Matisse on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. That's our Savage Lovecast. It's twice as long as the free show with no ads, and you can send it as a gift. We talk about, Matisse and I, wanted and unwanted bruises, gangbangs, S&M, when you're pregnant, and the proper cleaning and care of your ball gag, among many other kinky topics. Also on the Magnum, I chat with Peter Tupper, an author I ran into on a train who just wrote a book, really interesting book, about the history, the cultural history of S&M. Listen in. We get a lot of calls and questions about BDSM, bondage and discipline, sadomasochism, and a whole bunch of them came in recently and we decided we would just toss them all into a single show and we couldn't talk about BDSM and give advice to people about kink without having Mistress Matisse in to help field these questions. <laughs> you have been on this show 
many times. We, we've been doing the show for a decade. Yeah. You may have been one of our very first guests and our longest standing guest Aww, expert. That makes me so happy to hear. Thank you for having me, Dan. Well, thank you for coming back. I love it. And I love doing it. So before we get to the first call, we have many calls, so we don't have to talk for long. We'll have plenty of time. <laughs> um, what's the one thing that you, as a longtime practitioner of BDSM, want people Two different kinds of people to know. People who are into it and people who are not into it. What's the one thing that everybody into it needs to remember and the one thing everyone who isn't into it needs to bear in mind? Consent matters more than anything else. If you're into it and like it's easy to get kind of mm, casual a little bit, if you think, oh, I'm into this, I know what I'm doing, I can read the signs and play with someone without really getting explicit consent and that won't get you into trouble sometimes. So make no assumptions. Make no assumptions, right. And if you're not a kinky person, you should know that BDSM revolves around consent. Everything has to happen with consent. So whatever you see or whatever you hear, you think, oh, my God, it's something that was done to them with their consent. Some people, even some people in BDSM land that I've met, shy away from those conversations because they're afraid you can talk it to death. Too yeah. much talk before a scene mm-hmm. can drain it of its energy, can can ruin it. Right. And so they want to have as little conversation as possible or some of them, the dumb ones, want to have no conversation and just make assumptions based on someone's fet life profile or even your history with that person, mm-hmm. what they might be up for. Yes. And that is always a recipe, if not for disaster, that one time, disaster eventually. Yeah, yeah. Like you can only you know, go to bat before you hit a foul ball. And if you don't, you know, I mean, I can spend five minutes talking to someone and get all that I need to know to start the scene. And there's dynamic and ongoing consent, too. It's really easy to be like in the middle of a scene, just like, hey, is it working for you? You're liking this? Good. Mistress says good. Mistress mm-hmm. wants to know if you like it. Mistress demands you tell her. I mean, you can make it in the form of a in the form of the scene, uh, but you need to like force ongoing dynamic consent. Yes, I'm into this mistress. Yes, I'm enjoying this mistress. Thank you, mistress. May I have another? That sort of thing. And you would say something like, mistress wants to know and wants to know the truth. Yes. Don't tell me what you think I want to hear. I want to know the truth. I demand, yes, I demand the truth. I'm forcing you to tell me that you're really enjoying this. So it's fun. Everything requires a conversation. I I don't, I I think like as a, a gay guy, I'm in a special position to emphasize that to straight people. Like you don't get to be a gay guy if you can't open your up and say something. Right, right. And right. there's just so many people who think when it comes to sex, uh, even kinky sex, even complicated varsity sex, that you're going to ruin it if you say something. You drain away the spontaneity. It's just not true. I, I think that these people lack acting skills. I'm like, come on, man, get into the role play. Like, what would the top? And it's like, I want to know. I demand this. I, you know, and I make it part of the scene if you really want to. But you got to, yeah, you got to have the conversation. It's one of the great things about kink for adults is it's play. Yeah. And so many adults don't have any play. In their no, lives. they don't. They there, don't. There's this thing Midori, uh, kink educator, uh, had on her Instagram that I thought was so smart, and I'm going to badly paraphrase it, and I apologize to Midori, that BDSM is childlike play with adult privilege and awesome toys. <laughs> that is a wonderful sentiment. Yeah, it is, it is play. It's great toys. You make up personas. You do things that you wouldn't do in any other context, and they're fun, and everyone enjoys them. And yeah, I think that people don't play enough. Uh, and I think that's why BDSM remains enduringly popular uh, throughout the centuries, right, that it has been. Yeah, one of the guests on this week's program wrote a book on the cultural history of sadomasochism. Yeah. And it's not like all of this was invented 15 years ago in a fetish shop. You would think sometimes to hear people talk that they had just invented it. But no, it was not. I did not invent it. And neither did my kinky grandmothers. And it's, it's been around. You didn't invent it, but you perfected it. I- <laughs> Which is why we wanted to have you on. Should we go to the first question? Let's do it. 
Hey, Dan, uh, I am about to have a uh, house guest for the next three months, my husband and I. My question is, how discreet do my husband and I need to be about our BDSM relationship? The friend in question is already very well aware of it. For instance, she came over today to hang out and saw a ball gag that we had hanging in the bathroom to dry. Didn't blink an eye. She's fine. So what I'm wondering is, is this like a non-problem problem? Non-problem problems are my favorite kind of problems. They are the best kind. They really are. <laughs> Most easily solved. Uh, you know, this is obviously a non-problem. The friend knows that you're kinky. The friend's been over. They've seen some toys lying around. Not a problem. But it could be a problem with someone who doesn't know you well or someone you know casually because some people are not using their words. Some people are not communicating directly, not asking. Right. They'll leave kink shit laying around to open up a conversation, to hint. Oh, well, that's kind of weird. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that's kind of this weird passive-aggressive thing. Uh, I mean, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, this person's going to come stay at your house, I mean, and they know, this person knows that they're kinky. Just say, I will be attempt to be as discreet as possible with my toys and our noises and anything. You know, if anything bothers you, let me know. Uh, but we're, we're, you know, like say the words we're going to make an attempt to not you know have you see anything you don't want to see now your friend can say i don't care do it right in front of me i think it's kind of cool i want to watch i mean or maybe she'll say nothing of the kind but you want to avoid being that creep who i encountered yeah. when i first came out who left bondage gear laying around mm-hmm. and then somebody was like well, what's that and he's like well let me show you it's like no. yeah yeah that's manipulative bullshit right yeah so no just be i mean be as polite as you would normally be and just with I mean, even vanilla sex like you wouldn't have vanilla sex with your husband in front of your friend that's creepy and, and weird. if there was a random friend or family member coming over you wouldn't leave dildos in the dishwasher right You're just like, you know private i'm going to be considerate right um you don't actually have to hang a ball gag to dry it by the way <laughs> you can just take a towel and mop that bad boy off trust me i've done that maybe ten hundred thousand times uh, i think about that when i see some people's professional dungeons like i hope they're washing ball gags between use oh yeah well I'm very you squeamish should... it saved my life in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to have a whole bunch that you can cycle through them, right? And then you like wash them and let them dry. And if you let something sit out for like 30 days, there's nothing on it anymore to that. Ah! Yeah, like it's it's dead. It's like nothing. Can, so you just rotate things in and out if you're not sure of their. Uh, but you should wash your. But well, after you wash the them, yes, absolutely. People bring their own. Like like this is your ball gag, right? And you bring it with you. Like, like in my place, I have some little boxes with people's names on them that are their particular toys. Oh, that's like preschool. I know. You're it like is. your own little cubby. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah. It's like <laughs> all the little things that are special to them that they don't want to share. Okay. I keep them for you. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk. I'm in an awesome BDSM relationship. It's really loving and we have so much fun together. The problem is that my butt isn't bruising the way it used to. I really bruised like a peach and it was kind of something I took a lot of joy in, like a little memory that I would have of our fun and share pictures of it with my partner. And after I think one particularly bruise-filled session is when I can pinpoint it, I haven't been able to get bruised. I know that my partner is using the same amount of force and we're using the same amount of tools. Is, is this possible to like scar or I just don't know what's going on. Um, we're still having a lot of fun, but we just want to know if there's anything we can do to get my bruising back. I suppose you could smear some blue eyeshadow on the paddle. 
<laughs> I have seen this happen a lot with really like dedicated spankos. Um, your ass just kind of gets kind of leathery. I mean, not yeah. in a bad way, but like I have people who have been coming to me for years and their butt. It after a while, it does kind of get a little tougher. So uh, it's it's kind of like weed, right? You mm. can abstain for a little while and it will reset your tolerance to some degree. Uh, uh, but that's I'll not. try that someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard about it. I don't yeah, know yeah. if it works or not, but you know, I'm going to err on the side of remaining high so I can get through the Trump years. <laughs> I'm with you. I'll take my little abstinence break. <laughs> After the next presidential election. <laughs> right. So uh, so that can happen. Uh, she can also take aspirin if she wants more bruising, but aspirin is a blood thinner and it makes you more inclined to bruise in general. Oh, my God. That's why you're here. I never would have thought about that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, this is a th- totally a thing that happens. Um, and it's, uh, it, you know, maybe her top needs meaner toys like cane. I don't care how tough you are. A cane will leave a bruise on you. Mm, well, it will. So if this person knows how to incorporate canes into their into their life, and frankly, canes are not the most complicated toy to use on a butt. Like if someone has bent over and you're whacking their butt with this little stick, you're probably going to be fine safety-wise if you want bruises especially. I think anybody who's going to use a cane on someone needs to have it used on them first. Because is, people don't know the force yeah, that, no. that a cane whipping through the air has. Yeah. And you can break someone's skin. You can bloody them. Like it's a toy that I sometimes see novices pick up at like the leather market and I know yeah. they've obviously never used one before and I see them buy one and I'm just like, I feel so sorry for whoever's back in their hotel room later tonight. <laughs> that person does not know what they're doing and to not know what you're doing with a cane. Oh Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. I mean, you if you swung it really hard, you could break someone's skin. That is a true fact. Uh, that doesn't happen every single time. No, no, of course not. But yeah, not. you definitely start very, very, I mean, you know, get the, like this is the bottom who wants more bruising. So I'm kind of talking to her about yeah. like how she and can already get, got a toughened up rear end. Right. Uh, so yeah, in her case, she might try this and yeah, her and her partner should start very slowly and like just little light taps from the wrist until you kind of get the feel of it. But, uh, if she has a tough ass and she wants more bruising, then a more serious toy might be in the question. And if you're not experienced with a cane and there's no one there who can train you with a cane, like get online and watch some BDSM porn where someone is being caned and it'll look like they're being whacked with the cane very softly and you will watch welts and bruises emerge very quickly. You do not have to hit somebody hard with a cane to do damage. You usually get pretty immediate feedback from the bottom with a cane. <laughs> usually, yeah, it's very noticeable. They let you know right away how they feel about that. So, yeah, but yeah, you should watch, learn. I mean, if you have friends who do that, then obviously that also would be great. But uh, uh, in all ways, just start slow and get a lot of feedback. Hello, it's Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a 40-something straight female in a large Texas suburb, and I need help finding a non-monogamous relationship safely and in MAGA country. So my entire life, I've only ever been in long-term monogamous relationships. My last relationship ended after four years and that partner exposed me to kink, if only between the two of us. We would role play during sex of including another man, but this particular relationship would not have survived that in real life. Now that this relationship is over, I'm really curious to try it. We also indulged in incest and ravishment fantasies, and I really want to continue having this kind of sex, but I don't want another monogamous relationship at this point in my life, and I just don't know how to find what I want. I joined a popular online dating site, but the thought of endless dates with vanilla guys whose ultimate goal is finding a wife is exhausting before it even begins. 
And on the other hand, I've never been in a kink space before. Is it safe to go there alone? I don't know the protocol for being uncoupled, if that's even a thing. And I've met enough creeps in traditional dating to be wary of men in sexual situations where I don't have any reinforcements. And now there are apps. I've never been on dating apps until recently. What online kink sites are even reputable? How do you arrange for a safe hookup? I feel compelled to pursue new partners and new experiences. I really want to do this, but I don't want to be murdered or otherwise abused either. On the social circle side, my social circles are full of monogamous couples, and I don't think I'm likely to find what I want if they're trying to set me up. And I also work from a home office. So if I don't actually walk out my door and make a concerted effort to go out and meet people or online or in person, it's never going to happen. Tell me, Dan, where do I go? And a tree fell on me and I'm trapped in the forest. Help. <laughs> she has a lot of questions. She has She's a, lot, a of lot of questions. The first one I would want to knock down is this idea that out there in mega country, out there oh. in Republican land, there are no kinky people. Actually. Oh, so many kinky people. So many kinky people. I think that the more repressed you are, oh, the more you enjoy kink. That's, I mean, it's not a universal statement, but very often I have found that to be true. As have I. It's unrelated, but the first time I went to a swingers convention to write about it, a great big organized straight swingers convention in Vegas, literally everybody I met was a straight Republican couple from Texas. Right. So right. there are a lot of kinky, swinging, non-monogamous and the assumption she makes that if her friends set her up with somebody, that that person just can't be kinky, a lot of everybody is kinky. Yes. And so it's sometimes the case, you know, Yahtzee, you tell somebody your kinks and they're like, me too. Right. And that's yes. always a lovely moment. Yes. And you're going to want to lead with that, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> but let's get to the, you know, her bedrock question, which I think is a concern for a lot of people. I want to do this crazy kinky shit. I don't want to get murdered. All right. People in vanilla relationships get murdered. They do. Lacey Peterson, Google her. It's been a while. Straight vanilla relationship, dead at her husband's hands. It's a thing that everybody has to think about and bear in mind. And it's not just, it's not kinksters who are killing people right. by yeah. and large, despite Almost. what you may have seen on Law and Order SVU over <laughs> and over and over again. How often do you read about a kink crime in the papers? Very, very rarely. Yeah. Very, very rarely happens that way. Uh, I can relate to this woman since I grew up in Georgia, and I also knew that I did not want to, like, get married and have some very monogamous relationship. And, yeah, I know how it feels to look around and go, okay, my odds here are not the best, and then I moved to Seattle. Uh, <laughs> Moving, always an option. So, but this, I mean, kinky dating is no more inherently dangerous than straight dating uh, or vanilla dating or anything like that. I mean, you have to... Assess someone the same way you would in a, in a, if, if you were looking for a non-kinky monogamous relationship. Does this person seem trustworthy? Do they seem kind? Do they seem you know reputable? Being naked in a room with somebody when you're not tied up, you're vulnerable. There's an added layer of vulnerability if you're going to consent to being restrained. But you got to do your due diligence whether you're right. going to be restrained naked with that person or not unrestrained naked with that person. Right. I mean, there's plenty of women who yeah aren't in some situations and are harmed by men and there's, you know, plenty of reasons, plenty of occasions where women are with BDSM men and are not harmed in any way. So um, let me just disabuse you of the notion that you can't go to a sex club on your own. A woman in a sex club alone is like a golden unicorn <laughs> that they will throw rose petals in front of you as you walk because that does not happen very often. And people in sex clubs love it, love it, love it when single women show up. You might be swarmed. 
Yeah. You yeah. can say yes or no. Yes. You might want to check with the people running the event that you're at on your way in. If anybody gives you a bad feeling or is a creep or won't take no for an answer, know who the bouncers are, know who the people who are running the event are. Because usually, you know, the a sex club, sex party scene that's mixed sex collapses if the women leave. And they want yes. the women to be comfortable. So yes. any guy who's making women uncomfortable is going to get bounced. Yes. So, yeah. So when you get there, find out who the people you would report the guy making you uncomfortable to. And then if a guy makes you uncomfortable, report him. Say yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes, if a woman comes and she's alone and she's new, the people who run the party will make a special attempt to like take her under their wing and kind of introduce her to people and say, hey, you know, this is Susan and she's new. Let's all be really nice to her and, and not overwhelm her, you know, and stuff and remember that she's, you know, new here. And so uh, not only don't they want you to leave, they want you to come back. Yeah, they want you to come back. So you will be treated like a little princess. I promise you if you go to any kind of uh, sex or BDSM club. Uh, so that's but that's, if you aren't. Then it's not a well-run one yes. and you should leave yes. and not go back to that one. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, she may want, she wants kink in addition to non-monogamy. I would say, however, that the, the, like the swing community and stuff is a, is a great place to start looking for a non-monogamous kinky partner since they're already swingers. And so, hey, you know, maybe I'm into these other things too. It's, uh, it's a more target-rich environment. Than, uh, than a, you know, I mean, you can get on OK Stupid, right? Which I think is the most <laughs> kind of kinkish friendly dating site. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, and there are probably specialized uh, BDSM sites that pop up and they come and go. I don't on know. On OK Cupid, you can mark yourself as GGG officially in the, <laughs> in the sifting and sorting mechanisms. I don't understand how they work, but. One of the many tiny footprints, Dan Savage has left in our world. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there might be like local uh, sites that you could look at in Texas, but there's a lot of kinky people in Texas and a lot of probably non-monogamous people in Texas. Uh, what you want to look for a word that says munch. Uh, a BDSM munch is usually a daytime kind of clothes on affair where you meet at a local restaurant with a bunch of people and, and you get to meet people in, in a, you know, day, daytime controlled not a play party, environment. Yeah. Not rolling into a play party, no expectations, no pressure. Right. So you just have and have lunch or have brunch with people and chat with them and people are generally very friendly and outgoing at these things. And then you meet people like, okay, they invite you to a party or maybe you meet someone that you want to date, but you've met them in a, you know, in a safe and kind of controlled way and you can make your assessment. The other thing that the internet has brought to BDSMers and BDSM community are references. Yeah. If you get on FetLife, uh, which is mostly where straight kinksters meet, if you get on Recon, which is mostly where gay male kinksters meet, um, people have lists of friends. Yeah. And you can, if someone expresses an interest in you, it's expected that you can, it's not a violation of my own privacy, to reach out to their friends and mm-hmm. say, good witch or bad witch. That yeah. they're listed as friends, they're probably going to vouch for the person. Mm-hmm. But you'll be surprised. Sometimes you'll reach out to somebody who's a friend and they'll say, uh, nice got- enough person, but not very skilled at bondage. Hurt right. me by doing, you know, misusing handcuffs. Right. So right. even yeah. though I like them, even though we're friends, I wouldn't yeah. play with them again. Yeah, that happens. That totally happens. But that's a, that's a powerful resource that didn't used to exist uh, before the internet was the ability to check someone's references that easily. That is certainly true. God, and you and I both remember, like, just like, this person seems cool. Okay, I'll let them tie me up. Like, we'll yeah. bungee jump into this mess. <laughs> okay, Dan. So I'm a 22-year-old woman from Texas, and I think I'm really into the whole BDSM thing. It's what I like to watch online, at least. And I recently went on Reddit, and I just wanted to talk to some people about it. So I posted a comment and ended up talking to about 
like 20 people and they were all so controlling. <laughs> I mean, we I just wanted to talk and get to know them and they all just start role-playing right away and I went along with it and by the end of the night I was crying which I know it's my fault I don't know I got too into it and are there actual doms out there that are just regular people I can't imagine someone wanting to have that much control over a person and then just be normal yet that's still what I'm attracted to and I'm just feeling so conflicted about whether what I'm looking for is out there this sounds like such a stupid question but I am just frustrated after a night of talking to all these psychos Ugh. oh that poor child uh I mean, part of me thinks, honey, it was just one night, but it, to her, it's global, right? So let's talk about, first of all, Reddit. <laughs> yeah, that's where I, that's what I wrote down. I recently was on Reddit. I was like, that's where you went wrong. That was your first mistake. And that's where good, time's good to die is Reddit. There's lots of good information on Reddit, lots of good chats, but the, the sexual communities on Reddit, particularly the BDSM ones, are where people who don't actually do this in real life with anyone hang out. She was probably talking to some 16-year-old boy from somewhere who doesn't even know what he's talking about either. So, yeah, you, and those, those are really uncontrolled atmospheres and you have no idea who you're talking to and that's not a place to find good advice. But as a rule of thumb, you have a brief interaction with anybody, if you met them on FetLife or Recon or Reddit or wherever, and they instantly start doming you like you're in some 24-7, 365 BDSM total mm -hmm. power exchange relationship instantaneously, shut that down. Yeah, really do. Really do. I mean, first of all... the the whole notion of online BDSM is still just ridiculous to me. It's like just having a conversation, like don't pretend. So yeah, they push your boundaries way too far and way too fast and you wind up upset because even if you're just talking about it, it's a very intense emotional thing. And so this, what, what we learn from this is that we need to be very selective about right. who we make ourselves exposed to. And it sounds like she was titillated at first and playing long because it was kind of yeah. working for her and then it got too bossy too awful it went places that she didn't want to go and she was already in this like submissive mm -hmm. dynamic with this per this stranger sending emails or whatever yeah uh, and didn't know how to like reverse course and was probably right. shamed if she attempted to reverse right. course. she didn't have a safe word she didn't know how to get out of the scene yeah right and that's not good domination submission is a the end of a long conversation. It's yes. not the beginning of that conversation. It's yes. You yes. are equals negotiating power exchange up until the moment you exchange power. And then that power can be taken back at any moment. Yes. By Absolutely. withdrawing your yes. golden word consent. That's right. It all spends on consent. So no, I would I would not get on Reddit. Uh, I mean if you if you really want to look at a website then I guess Fet Life is a little better, although you do need to watch out. But there over there at least if you say, Hey, this guy's harassing me, they they understand what that means and there's some mechanism in place for that. But anyone who tells you a real sub wouldn't question, a real sub wouldn't da -da -da -da, uh, is, is not a real top, is not a real dom. Right. Because real doms are, in fact, normal people who also enjoy dominating people in their recreational life. That's, I mean, that's me. Mm -hmm. I'm professionally as well as recreational. But 
Um, the rest of the time, I'm a normal person, and you would not know that I don't walk around like smacking my riding crop up my hand all the time and wearing six inch boots. Like I'm a normal person. So yeah, I would I, again to this girl as to the the lady in Texas, I would suggest that you kind of get out and try to meet actual people in real spaces uh, and in safe places because you are very young and. Uh, you don't yet have as much experience kind of like sussing out and detecting who's going to treat you well and who's not. And the anonymity of the internet uh, is very disinhibiting sometimes in terrible ways. And someone may (laughs) behave as a dom in a way that they wouldn't behave as a dom face to face. And yeah, you don't want your first interactions to be mediated by the internet. You want to find somebody who is a real person with a real face who really exists, who can meet you in person, mm-hmm. meet you at a munch, meet you at a time where they're not expecting to play with you, mm-hmm. and begin to have a long conversation about your interests, your desires, sussing each other out. Right. It's just like going on a fucking date. It is. Before it's- you have purely vanilla sex. <laughs> The other thing I would say to this girl is try to find some female friends on even online or anything else, but in person if, who are also kinky. Mm. Because if you, if you're a young girl and you're looking for love and like your hormones can kind of get the better of you and you can think, oh, this guy would be a great topic. And, you know, when in fact that's not the case. If you have women that you can talk about people with, it gives you more feedback about whether how this guy, how this top, this male top is acting is appropriate or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I would try to find some women in your life that you can be pals with, that you can talk about this with. Let's talk about the DS dynamic for a second in the context of a relationship. Cause it sounds like she might be one of those people out there who's fantasized about a dom sub relationship. And how do you find that with someone who's also a normal person? And when I've seen that in other people's relationships in a way that's healthy and works, for the most part, the DS stuff is imperceptible. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they're having sex or they're in some sort of like erotic environment, they're at a fetish night or a fetish club or a weekend or something. It's like this low thrum may be way in the background. And Mm -hmm. if you weren't like attuned to kinky thrums, you wouldn't even notice it. Family, friends, neighbors, not going to pick up on it. Mm -hmm. Like you might, I might. But otherwise, it's... Very subtle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's the, it's a it's a dial there that someone can turn when both people want mm-hmm. to turn the dial and like dial it way the fuck up. But for the most part, dials yeah. it one, not no. eleven. Yeah, like you're you're not going to crawl on the floor to bring him his dinner every night of the week. You're going to do that like you know once every two weeks, and you're having a big scene, and it's right. really hot, and you know it's all. Fifty Shades of whatever, but yeah, you're not going to live that way. And anyone who says like, "Yeah, you're going to be my slave, and you're going to live in a dog crate," and all, that's a do not go near that person. Just don't. It's a nice fantasy. Anyone who acts like they're really going to put you into that right away is a dangerous or person. Yeah, or forever. Yeah, the forever thing too. Don't like that. Uh, you should like it should not go any faster than a, a normal relationship. And in some cases, I think it should go slower. Like the, the cases where I've seen where they were like really like. 24-7, it built slowly. Like they built trust. The relationship became more and more and they added more and more layers until they had this very complete... Elaborate. Uh, yeah, DS. Yeah, but it was built piece by piece, right? And it wasn't like all like, here's the, here's the thing, you have to fit yourself into it. It's like you create it together doing the things that both work for you. Mm-hmm. Hey, Dan. I am a white queer, polyamorous, pansexual, kinky, gender-fluid individual, and I have a huge gangbang fetish. I have shared this with my partner and partners in the past, and I just really am trying to itch the (laughs) urge to have this experience come to fruition and have this be a reality in my life. 
And it sort of scares me that I don't really know where to start. I'm a consent educator and a very sex positive individual. And I feel really dumped and shy and weird about my own uh, desires in this regard. Um, I also always fantasize about multiple cisgendered men and their penises. And it kind of freaks me out because I have not really been with that many cisgendered men in the past. And I just feel pretty overwhelmed by this. I want to plan this, but then I also want my partner to plan it for me and surprise me. And then I'm trying to figure out what would set me up for the most safe environment for this fetish to come into a reality. So I'm just all around confused and would love your advice. Okay. Transgression is so powerfully erotic. <laughs> I'm a genderqueer fluid, pansexual. Uh, I have I don't really like cisgender men. I haven't slept with many, but I really want to get fucked by ten at once. Because it's so antithetical to the person I am and the kind of people I like. Of course that's what turns of you on. Of course it is. That's awesome. That's an awesome fantasy. And I hopefully hope this person gets to fulfill it. So let's let's talk about okay, so she uh, I, I forget the list of things she identified right, as a solo. Yeah, no, I can't remember I how that started. Go back and check my notes here, but uh I support all of your identities caller. It was just a long list. Yeah, no, it totally was. I just, wanted, I just wanted to make sure I had this right. I have right. a hard time remembering someone's first name. And some people's <laughs> sexual and gender identities are like, it's like listening to the Queen of England's titles after a while. <laughs> it kind of is like Game of Thrones, Daenerys Targaryen, first of her name, That's Breaker right, of Chains. Breaker of Chains. <laughs> like, okay. Mother of Dragons. All right, all right, all right. What's your problem? <laughs> right. I'm kind of, a, this is Jon Snow. He's King of the North. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I could have given Daenerys some advice. <laughs> Please don't fuck the dullest character on your show. Oh, my God. That won't end well. No, it Ended. didn't. Uh, so I, I kind of wish I knew by what she meant when she said she hasn't been with that many men. Like, how many is that cisgender many? Men. Uh, cisgender men. Cisgender uh, men. Like, does she mean two? Does she mean, like, 20? Because that doesn't sound like that many to me. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I'm kind of vague on that. But I, my immediate impressions are... I don't think that your partner should set this up entirely without your input. input. Yeah, like, I mean, you can sort of play a little game with this if you want to, but I, I don't think you should put all the responsibility of making this really freighted, you know, baggage-laden fantasy you have come true. Because if it doesn't go right, then you're going to blame your partner, and that's not really fair. Yeah, it's not fair to set your partner up like that. No, Maybe not. there's some aspects of it where your partner could be in control of exactly when, but if you're coordinating with, like, five or six different guys for an event... Right. And, you, you know, that takes a lot of pre-planning. It does. And so, like, surprising you with that. What if you, like, aren't in the mood that day or yeah, yeah. stubbed your toe or had your period and so it wasn't, like, a time that you wanted to get drilled by 10 guys? So, Maybe it is. Some people have different reactions right. when period kicks in. Traditionally, when one wants to do, wants to be the subject of a kidnapping scene or some kind of other, you know, scene where you are overwhelmed Elaborate like Elaborate and inherently risky. Right. Um, one of the one of the techniques that you do is if you give the other person a window of like three days where you've like made sure ah. that your schedule is clear and you're not having a period and like you know your hair looks good and all the things <laughs> that are very important the house is clean and like all the things that that would make you feel uncomfortable and in sometime in this three day period this is going to happen and you don't know when. Oh, no. and that will make every move you make, every place you go over those three days. Right. You'll be just like, oh, what's going to happen? But it's a, like it's a short enough, it's a manageable amount of time. Oh, that's a really good idea. Right. So that's one way you can go. Um, and choosing partners, I mean, I guess you – I mean, you could put an ad on Craigslist and you would have a line of guys around the block. I don't think Craigslist uh, has those ads anymore. Oh, I guess they don't do that. I thought they were uh, – No, Post, Post-Sesta 
No sex ads on Craigslist. <laughs> no, I mean, no even meeting ads. Well, okay. Uh, so we're putting it up somewhere else. And, you know, go sit in the Starbucks at a different table from your partner. And your partner, come, like, sits and they come in and say hi. And I'm going to, you know, I'll bang your partner. And I'll, and you get to look at them, right, mm-hmm. at least, and kind of suss them out. Um, and maybe, you know, you can sit close enough that you can hear. But, you know, it doesn't know it's you and you wear dark glasses and all that. So you can kind of play games like that where you're cooperatively doing it, but you're maintaining a little bit of your fantasy at the same time. So that the person at the gangbang thinks that you've never seen them before. Right. And you can tap into their belief in the conceit without having to take the risk right. of your partner bringing three people that, to your six-person gangbang that you wouldn't want touching oh, you. really like, yeah, that, yeah. Because I think that you have to see them and be like, okay, right, I, that guy, I'll deal with that guy. Uh, I mean, I, so I, I think, I mean, it's a fantasy to have like these total strangers. They can wear masks if they want to to make mm-hmm. it really creepy for her if she wants to. Uh so she can identify their faces and like we can lots of fun. But she needs to be participatory and give ongoing and dynamic consent throughout this process. And even if – and I would encourage her to double, triple, quadruple check with her partner that she's excited about the idea of setting this up. Yes. That is the other point too. Is like is your partner really into this? Is this something that your partner is going to want to be at? Do you need your partner there to be the hall monitor and the, the, the safety person is your partner yeah, going to be I, there to make sure the condom's on. That's an awesome responsibility to heap on your partner's shoulders. And your partner has to be enthusiastically consenting as well. Yes. And if your partner is at all ambivalent about organizing this scene for you, maybe this is something you're like kink friends who are your other right. sexual partners yeah. might be able to arrange for you. And your partner totally. can be at home with Drawing a bath for you when it's all over right. and not actually at the event. Yeah, just a trusted friend would be like, you know, like the person to kind of like, you know, manage the door and yeah, manage the condoms and, you know, give you a drink of water and all that sort of stuff that you're going to want to have. So, yeah, you want to have someone there that you trust. But, yeah, I guess you're right. It doesn't have to be your partner. Yeah, and, and a hall monitor. A hall I think it's really important at an event like <laughs> yes, that. You know, is. I know gay guys who have fantasies about like being strapped down to a bed and 10 guys coming into the room and fucking their ass. Right. right. And there has to be somebody in the room. Who's looking out for your health, looking out for your safety, looking out. Right. You need a dungeon master. You. It's kind of huh? like, a, it's like a, a dungeon master, right? Yes, it's like, absolutely. Yeah, I am here to enforce the rules. I am here to make sure no one gets out of, out of control. And I've done that for many people. Like I've facilitated that thing and I will be in the room and I will make sure it all goes fine and you guys just do your thing. It's really fun. I, I facilitated some fantasy scenarios for friends who wanted like a, a big crazy thing to happen. Yeah. Um, never a partner though. Yeah. Never somebody who was my like you know, my husband yeah. or boyfriend. And that's a really fun role for a, a friend to play for a friend. It has to be an intimate friend. It has to be a close friend. It has to be somebody who really knows you yeah. and you're really open with. Uh, but if your partner is okay with you doing this, is okay with you doing it with somebody else, doing the legwork, if they enjoy doing the legwork for you, yeah. maybe your partner can be yeah, that's true. cut out of the process. They could if they want to be. Yeah, that's a good point. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis woman in her mid-40s in the Northeast. I love being spanked, and I've finally found a partner who loves it, too. We're excited to experiment with lots of different things. We've liked a flogger and a riding crop so far, although I enjoy his hand the most. But there's one thing we're worried about, which is injury or damage to my ass. Several times, my partner has burst a lot of blood vessels on my bum. It's like a mini crime scene back there. He warms me up well, and he hasn't even been going at me that hard or for that long. The marks aren't usually painful, and I've healed every time. But we're wondering if we have the potential to injure or permanently damage me, or if there's anything, techniques, toys, implements, we should either be using or staying away from for that reason. Well, spoiler alert, we already know that this problem is going to work itself out in time. <laughs> from that earlier call. <laughs> we do. 
We do. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of the phrase burst blood vessels kind of like you mean bruises what you're saying is bruises i hope she means bruises and not uh, yeah because if you're really like bursting blood vessels that's kind of maybe something you should ask your doctor about like does that happen when you smack yourself on other parts of your body you're getting blood blisters yeah like uh, assuming she just means that she's bruising okay well that's fairly normal and some people bruise in a kind of spidery pattern like it can look a little like pencil tracy bruising um but that doesn't mean you're bursting blood vessels. It just means you're getting a lot of blood up to the surface and maybe you have some uh, veins very close to the surface that are inflamed. Right. But again, it's going to work itself out it, in time. It definitely will. Yeah, it will. You will have a leathery bottom someday <laughs> and you will look back on the days of easy bruising and you'll call into the show, how can I get my burst blood vessels back, Dan? Get Matisse back in here. <laughs> that is really quite funny. Well, I think, I mean, she says that she likes his hand best and I, I mean, there's really literally no way that I can think of that you can harm someone or damage someone by spanking their ass with your hand. That it's just, it might bruise them and it might hurt and it might be sore, but there's just really no way you can do permanent damage to someone in that fashion that I know of. You take a running leap from across the room and hit them as I, I, hard as possible with your big meaty hand and they have a bony butt. Maybe you could hurt them. I back. mean, maybe if you did it for like eight hours straight and your butt just turned to liquid and I mean, you know, it's just, <laughs> you know, it, in the general way of things, it's like, yeah, that just, that's, you know, that's just not a very dangerous thing. So uh, the other toys may be. Uh, anything that's long and hard, like a cane, is gonna, as we discussed earlier, is probably gonna leave bruises. So maybe that's what she's talking about. Um, I would proceed with softer toys and just hands for a while and kind of see how that works. out. I've seen some paddles that are fur-lined on one side. They are. Does that result in less bruising? Uh, it does. Those are the wimpy ass paddles for <laughs> little cowards who can't really, you know. It, it, they, it's hard to get a really good smack with. Yeah, you're in or you're out. Right? Don't, you know, like, <laughs> but there are there are fuzzy soft. handcuffs, no fuzzy. Paddles. <laughs> it's a question of like if you're just using your wrist muscle, like to, to smack like that's not hard once you start getting like shoulder and elbow into it okay that's very serious but i mean just yeah try tapping lighter with the toys and something else to bear in mind when you're getting spanked by someone is if it's really stinging and hurting your butt it's also stinging and hurting your their hand and there's only so long they're going to be able to go on doing that. That is so true. I have been like spanking people over my knee and been like wincing because my hand hurt so bad. But I could tell they were right about to have their spanko kind of climax. I can't stop now. I'm going to keep on going. Ow, ow, ow. No one knows how I suffer, Dan. No I had a caller knows. use spanko previously on the show like years ago. And I got an angry email saying that that is a pejorative It is term. not. <laughs> it is not. I know and love many spangos, and if you have a problem with it, you can email me, and I will explain to you how it is a term of love. Hi, Dan. I have a question regarding pregnancy and BDSM. I am currently 26 weeks pregnant, and up until now, I haven't really had much of a sex drive. Um, but recently, I've started to feel more roused by my husband and more excited and more interested in masturbation. So I wanted to jump back into bed with him um, and really just kind of pick up where we left off. My question is, how safe is it to practice BDSM while pregnant? My specific kinks include being choked and being spanked. So I'm just kind of curious, what should <laughs> what should we avoid? What safety precautions should we take? Kind of should we take the same um, safety precautions that we normally do, obviously don't nothing around the belly. So yeah, I just wanted to get some advice from you and, and hear your take on it. Oh my God. 
it terrifies me. It terrifies me when I hear people talking about joking so casually. Let's talk about joking uncasually. Oh, my God. Okay. So, and this is what I get hate mail about is that I tell people, just don't. Just don't. I mean, I know it feels good to some people. I know. But it's like it's just to me, this is a risk that you cannot control all the variables for. And the the penalty for a mistake is so incredibly high, even more so in her case. Uh, so because the, the one of the potential outcomes from choking seeing on her eye is death. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, and there's no way to know in any given time it, if your choking scene is going to end in death because people's bodies respond differently. You could have done it a dozen times before, and this time it goes a little bit wrong somehow and something bad happens. The numbers of people who fantasize about being choked out, the, the ubiquity of choking in porn, it's, it's almost – sometimes I feel irresponsible that we don't address it more often. Yeah. And I'm shy to address it because you know I want people to be able to do what they would like to do as safely as possible. And I think people have a right to take risks and our bodies are ours to use and use up. And people do things every day that for pleasure that end up killing them. They snowboard and slam into a tree or go after a crevasse and they die. They eat chicken salad. They forgot to refrigerate it and they die. And it, it we only – have a problem with pleasurable pursuits that kill us when they involve boners and <laughs> you know what I mean? But I agree with you that this is so inherently dangerous. It is it really choking. Is. Um, garroting. I've seen some people oh, being into, there are blood vessels that if you uh, nerve and nerves through the neck, it all is compressed. You can press on something the wrong way and someone can yeah. go into a cardiac arrest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can do damage, long-term, permanent, irreversible damage to someone, um, up to and including death, but not even necessarily including death. Now, this lady is pregnant, and the baby is breathing how she breathes, and so really, really, really definitely do not do any kind of breath control while you are pregnant. Just please don't. And, and this is way above my pay grade, but there have been studies that show that uh, – People that were infants that were in utero and their mothers were under an incredible amount of stress and were pumping up a lot of cortisone, stress hormone, mm -hmm. and adrenaline, that impacts because it all passes yeah. through and it can have a lifelong impact. And, and this is just me extrapolating and, and, and speculating and I'd want to get some actual docs in here to talk about whether that would be a risk. But one of the things that you're gaming and inducing, I think, sometimes in BDSM play – is adrenaline, are stress hormones mm -hmm. that you've eroticized, but your fetus probably hasn't eroticized. Probably not. No, no. Yeah. Which is not to say you shouldn't do anything, but choking and beating while you're pregnant? I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not saying that it's not morally wrong to want it. It's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just like the timing. Like You can maybe, fantasize about it. You can yeah. talk dirty to each other about it. Right. And use vibrators about it. Yeah, I mean, I, at worst, she could talk to her doctor and at least not the choking part, but at least say, you know, Doc, I kind of like to get spanked every now and then. Are we being then. kid negative here? Because people have vanilla sex all the time and get rammed and slammed. I guess, I, I mean, I've never been pregnant. So I, I was, was kind of thinking of my, my colleague in Velvet Swing, who's Chelsea, who has a baby and who is also um, a sex positive person. Uh, would probably have a better answer for this. But as, as a lay person, I have no medical training. I'm only kinky. I... Please do not get choked while you are pregnant because, yeah, I can't. Or get choked ever. I Well, I, and that's my belief. But and you I, get hate mail for that. People who are People are very upset about me for that. And I'm, I, you can do it. I'm not stopping you. I'm just telling you I think it's a bad idea and that you're risking death and that there are other ways to feel good. But as you say, you know, people are free to do what they want. But if you ask me my opinion, that's what I'm going to tell you. Breath play is really uh, big, particularly in like gay male kink yeah. uh, scenes. Yeah, I know. 
people die doing breath play, almost invariably they're alone when they die yeah. doing breath play. Yeah. Rarely do you, and breath play, I mean, um, like rebreather bag or you know, or a plastic bag over the head. If you're alone in doing that and trying to push it to the point, you know, where you're trying to time your orgasm with yeah. passing out, that's where people oh, die. Yeah. And you never read about that happening or find, you hear about cases where that's happened when someone was with a partner. Right. So there's a certain kinds of breath play that I think are reasonably safe yeah. enough to do with a responsible, sober partner. Right. But not alone, and not all choking. All, not all breath play is choking. There's right. a, a wide variety of things that fall I'm under the term. Talking about gas mask, rebreather bags, things that aren't putting pressure on the throat right. or neck, but that allows for someone else to control your air intake. Right. I, I you know, that's it, that to me. See, this is where we're different. That to me is still pushing it further than I want to go. I have a boundary about this. It's my boundary as a top, and I get to have it. So, but you go further, and that's okay too. I'm, it's not again. This is not a moral thing. People will work as hard as they can to make their kink as safe as they can, and but the heart wants what it wants, and I get to that. Yeah, yeah. It always makes me feel really weird to talk about it because I don't want anybody who's never done it before to experiment with it because they heard us talking about it because it's just it's. You know, a, a joke about JV kink and varsity kink, yeah. it's like way above varsity way. kink. Any sort of way. breath play, whether you're talking about choking, which I don't think people should do at all, partnered around partner, yeah. I don't know how you choke yourself alone, um, or other ways that allow for someone to manipulate your air intake. Right. Uh, that is something that you have to be with somebody who knows what they're doing. You do. And, and I think there's. If you're going to risk it, and it's a risk, it's a risk. Um, I will say that there, I think there are th- there are educational processes you can undergo that will help you understand better and how to do that safely. Uh, I have talked to people who have scuba dived and done free diving, and they understand a lot about how oxygen works in your body. Uh, similarly, there are, you know there are people who are medical people, but but I'm I'm frightened by the casualness with which people who have no training, no background, no real understanding of how this works, just put their hands around someone's neck and start. I'm like that. No, you didn't. I've you, watched. A lot of porn. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, no, it's not. It's not that. Hi, Dan. I don't watch a lot of porn, or I don't watch it regularly, but when I do watch porn, I'm mostly interested in BDSM porn, and one thing that comes up for me every time I end up watching it for free on the internet, on the major sort of porn sites that there are, just by searching for keywords, is whether there's a risk that by watching free BDSM porn, I could be promoting any sort of sex trafficking or porn made without consent, or anything like that. I definitely come across some things that are kind of intense and don't seem to fall into any of the sort of major, like, pink.com categories or obviously, like, labeled categories. And so my I wonder, first of all, if that's a risk, and second of all, if the only way to ethically consume porn is by paying for it from a place that you know it's safe. Uh, yeah, the only ethical way to consume porn is to pay for it, mm-hmm. full stop. Uh, and yes, you can pay for it from a, a, a website that you like that you think is reputable. Uh, but yeah, it is. It has something to do with sex trafficking or you know the potential of sex trafficking. It is ethical to pay for your porn. People worked to create that. You should give them some money. Well, how do if you're watching people who are being you know performing abuse in porn? Um, how do you determine whether this is something that turned them on, that this was made in a consensual way, that this isn't someone under economic duress doing something on film that traumatized them? 
Well, in some ways, you don't get that. Like, you don't get to know the emotions of someone who's performing in a performance. If you, I mean, you have to assume there is consent uh, if you get it from a sort of major porn distributor or even from someone who has their own shop and puts out all their own work. I know many people like this uh, and who have a presence and have an ongoing, like they have a Twitter feed and they have, you know, an Instagram or whatever. They've got a huge body of work posted on many different sites. You can talk to them in some fashion. There's usually some way that you can communicate with the porn star of your dreams, whether they'll reply to you or not. But like you, you can send them fan mail, things like that. God, I really think Twitter right now is the entry point because you can find kink educators. You can find uh, feminist uh, porn yeah. entrepreneurs and creators and yeah. directors. And through them and through the people they follow and the stuff that they post or repost or retweet, you can find your way to ethically produce. You can find a whole yeah. like ecosystem yes. of ethically produced um, porn and pornographers who know what they're doing and pornographers right. who respect performers and performers who are themselves kinksters and are out about it yeah. on their Twitter feeds. I worry that once Twitter gets yanked away, yeah. along with Craigslist and Tumblr yeah. and Facebook and Instagram, which have already been yanked away from sex positive people and kink educators and sex educators and sex workers, that it's going to be even more difficult to, you know, be an ethical consumer of BDSM porn. Yeah. Or any well, sort of porn. Well, certainly the prices will go up. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. So if you find someone that whose style you admire, get, you know, get on Twitter, find a female producer. Uh, I don't – the association with porn of, of, and sex trafficked people is really um, – that, that just doesn't exist. For one thing, if someone has been kidnapped, you usually don't take film of them. <laughs> it's not the best um, way to keep that really discreet. So well, People just use sex trafficking as a sort of catch-all pejorative to mean anything that makes me uncomfortable. Right, and I'm, I'm kind of like knocking that down. So no, no one you're watching has been sex trafficked. You said something about like, you know, were they really into it? Were they under economic duress? I enjoy my job a great deal, and I'm very comfortable where I am. But it's not not for other people to say you have to enjoy your job for, in order for it to be okay. You have to be doing. You have to be a trust fund baby in order to be able to make porn ethically. Otherwise, you're under economic distress. Everyone who works for a living is under economic duress, right? We all have to like pay the checks so you go to work. That's why it's called work. So I don't like the idea that she's kind of putting on these porn performers like you have to feel a certain way about what I'm watching. It's like, no, it has to be produced consensually and ethically. And I think you can find that pretty quickly. But projecting your kind of anxieties about watching porn onto the people, I've experienced that myself. And it's a really weird feeling when people just won't like, are you sure you're into this? Now, you're sure you're really sure I'm like, yeah, I'm into it. I have a dungeon. I'm, I have an ad in the paper. I'm standing here in this outfit. Like, what about me suggests that I'm not really into this? This is an outfit you get into accidentally in the yeah, first thing in the morning. Right. You can't pull out a rubber dress. I went to a lot of looking work at what for you're wearing. this, right? Uh, my, uh, my feeling, though, about it, uh, like to relate this to, to me and gay stuff, like there's a lot of gay for pay porn out there where there's like straight guys having sex with each other. Does nothing for me really? because I can't project myself into that experience. I don't want to watch somebody putting a dick in his mouth who doesn't really want a dick in his mouth or yeah. putting his dick in a dude's mouth who doesn't really want his dick in a dude's mouth. And so somebody's like just doing it for the money. It kind of ruins that man on man sex for me. And even if it's not a qualm about like some people do jobs that they don't necessarily enjoy, some people muck out pig manure lagoons. Nobody cares whether they're doing that under economic duress. 
even so, like I think BDSM porn, like gay porn, I imagine it's more exciting and works better if you yeah, think I mean, that everybody's you know, really loving it. I would call that good porn versus bad porn. And bad porn is when you can tell, like, yeah, you can tell. They'd rather be mucking out a pig yeah, right. Uh So, but yeah, I just like, especially since it was a woman and this is, I, I would be, you know, flambéed on Twitter if I did not say you like sex workers don't have to enjoy their jobs to be a valid, you know, occupation. And these people are working and. Everyone has an off day, but yeah, just if you don't like the video, then don't don't watch the video. Obviously, if it's not really working for you. Some weeks I write columns under economic duress. You do? Oh my I god, you're being trafficked. Gotta Dan. pay the bills. Gotta do my job. To. Oh my god, someone call an org right now <laughs> I and need get rescue. The... Yeah, that means they arrest you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of hot. If it's like somebody I want to be arrested by, if I'm into oh, I it. I see the hot cop fantasy. Here we go. Here we go. And then we'll set fire to the prison, and the hot fireman will come. <laughs> Mistress Matisse, professional dominatrix, sex workers' rights activist, cannabis entrepreneur. Quickly, do the download about your cannabis. Oh, I am the proprietor of a pop brand called Velvet Swing. And Velvet Swing is a cannabis-infused sex lube that makes ladies have longer, stronger orgasms. I'm not even kidding you. You will come so hard. You will see stars. (laughs) You will call out my name. Uh, We call uh, Velvet Swing around the office. We call it liquid foreplay. Uh, wow. So, yes. Not that we want to encourage dudes to be lazy and just put a bottle of Velvet Swing by the bed and think your job is done. <laughs> With the orgasm that she has as Velvet Swing, she might think that that was totally okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, uh, Mr. Matisse, at Mr. Matisse. Yeah. Thank you for coming in. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about a book that is on today's theme, BDSM. Peter Tupper is an historian, a writer, and a journalist, and he's the author of the new book, A Lover's Pinch, A Cultural History of Sadomasochism. Hey, Peter, thanks for jumping on the phone. Great to be here, Dan. So, uh, first question, do kinks have cultural histories? Oh, they do. There's, uh, you can even identify trends. There's even like, you can see things change and become more popular and less popular over different times. Mm-hmm. Like something really interesting happened around 1920. Because before that, when you, when you talk about fetishes, it was almost always talking about sort of very soft materials, like women wearing uh, lace or fur and things like that. Mm-hmm. And But around the 1920s, you started seeing the shift towards very sort of what you might call hard materials, like uh, leather or uh, rubber. And uh, that's... So you started seeing that in the pornography of the period and... Which was, you know, people's erotic imaginations really having the time to process industrialization, urbanization. Yeah, there was definitely a shift there. There was, um, yeah, I mean, you could also influ- sort of look at the influence of, of art, uh, like the beginnings of Art Deco mm-hmm. uh, and all this, like the trend towards simplicity. And uh, you could also see it in sort of the movies and like the French, the early French silent films that where the, there was this trend about uh, criminals wearing these form-fitting black suits. And I'm pretty sure that was an influence on the sort of a fetish wear you saw in later years. So then, then you could also see, like, in the 19th century, it was almost all flagellation. It was very much about caning or whipping. And, and it's later on in the 20th century, after this sort of big shift in the, 20th, in the 1920s, that's when you started to see more variety. You started to see bondage, uh, a more diversification in, in people's kinks. 
And uh, then you get into like after after the war, you started to seeing uh, that's when you saw artists like John Willie and Eric Stanton, you know, making their art that was, you know, still influenced today. So you can see the trends and the changes over time about what people are into. In my casual observations, <laughs> uh, I, I noticed sort of a dividing line around the Second World War, that when you look at vintage uh, BDSM or Kink or SM pornography from before the Second World War, it was a lot of pastorals. It was manor houses and French maids yeah. and, and stable boys and a lot of whipping. And after the Second World War, after that mass worldwide trauma of you know the rise of fascism, and here we are again, but we're not going to talk about that right now, BDSM, you know, 20 years later, 15 years later in the 50s and 60s, there emerged, you know, you see it in the works of Tom of Finland, there emerged a kind of erotic regurgitation of a lot of the images and imagery and silhouettes and outlines of fascism that had been eroticized. And yeah, one of the things I really enjoyed about reading your book is seeing other moments throughout history where that exact same thing happened. Yeah. One of the things I've discovered in this is that there's a strong tendency to equate sex, political deviance with sexual deviance. So we, we have this tendency to look at other groups and project our sexual fantasies onto them. So for Protestants, that's Catholics. And we have all this fetishization for nuns and priests and and figures like that for the north in uh, the in the 19th century it was uh, projecting fantasies about slavery onto the south in the 15th and 16th centuries it was about projecting christians projecting their fantasies of deviant sexuality onto the muslim world Mm -hmm. and we're kind of still doing that today so when we when we look at erotic fascist imagery like you know the those uh, men's magazines in the 60s or or the Ilsa movies we're not really seeing what fascists would have thought of themselves we're seeing what we sort of project onto them about about deviant forms of sexuality about sadism about masochism about Power. Uh, about you know, power. about power. Like Oscar Wilde famously said, everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Yeah, yeah. And so I think is that we're and we're still kind of getting that today with like the these these uh, paranoid conspiracy theories about like the Pizzagate thing a few years ago where they were mm. bla- you know that supposedly the Democrats are running like a child, child sex ring out of a. Yeah, out of a pizza joint in in Washington. Out of, wait, and wait, it, wait. It's better than that. Out of the basement of a pizza joint yes. in Washington in a building that doesn't have a basement. Yeah, and that's pretty much straight out of this sort of playbook because in the 1830s, there was this very popular book called The uh, Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk, which talked about uh, this woman who claimed she had been held prisoner in a convent in Montreal and, and trained as a sex slave for priests. And this was a best-selling book because a lot of there was a very strong anti-Catholic sentiment in America at the time. And then people went actually went and, and looked here, and they couldn't find any of the people, and there was no hidden there were no hidden chambers and no no piles of corpses and things. So that it was it, it's this paranoid pattern that we see repeated again and again. Like history does not may not repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. <laughs> One of the things that uh... 
that struck me as I read the book is, you know, as a gay man, uh, there's this point in your young gay life when you come out and you find out that Michelangelo was gay and Alexander the Great right. was, you know, gay. Uh, not that they had those words, not that homosexuality and heterosexuality were so neatly divided then. Um, that Alan Turing was this gay man who, you know, invented the computer age and we're denied our history. We're denied, you know, in education, yeah. um, in just popular cultural conversation, the acknowledgement that there were gay people before 1969. And it was interesting reading this book and, and, and learning that, you know, famous French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau was kinky, that he liked to mm -hmm. be whipped. And he attributed this, as many kinksters today would do, to early formative childhood experiences. And in a way, you know, the book uh, is fascinating for that reason. You keep encountering historical figures who – you know, turns out Foucault was not the first kinky French philosopher. Rousseau yeah. uh, came before him. Um, and, and, and there are other people not as famous that you meet reading the book. Um, one of them that I found particularly interesting, considering the sort of mass worldwide cultural trauma that her erotic imagination was processing, was a woman named Hannah Colwick. Can you tell us about her? Mm -hmm. Okay. Hannah Colwick was a maid of all work who lived in Victorian England. And she live she had a secret relationship with a gentleman named Arthur Munby and they both kept diaries which uh became part of the historical record which which revealed and no, almost nobody knew about them when they were alive that they had a secret consensual master slave relationship so we found out from their diaries that, you know, Mundy was absolutely fascinated by working class women and he loved women who were big and dirty and did hard physical labor, which was the total opposite of the Victorian ideal. And uh, she would, you know, love to, she took a great deal of pride in her work and she would call the Mundy her, her massa and uh, she would wear a locking chain collar and a leather wrist strap, and she would write detailed descriptions of her workday and send them to Mundy, or she would arrange for him to watch her while she worked. Here are these two characters in Victorian yeah. London, and they're role-playing not just a dom-sub relationship, not just a master-slave relationship, but really an antebellum southern yeah. uh, chattel slavery, massa, she calls him, she wears a chain around her neck, massa-slave relationship. And so yeah. there are a lot of inequities uh, in Victorian London. Uh, there were a lot of women working as servants. Um, they, women were powerless. But these two threw themselves into a kind of role play that tapped into a different culture and a different degree of powerlessness and eroticized it. It's fascinating. Yeah. And it was – this was – I mean they were doing this when they were – before slavery was ended in America. And um, so I think this is a lot like – People were processing, as you put it, this 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 cultural issue, which was a hugely contested issue in the 19th century, through these sort of romanticized ideals of uh, suffering and devotion and and uh, redemption. And and I think that it, that it's it was really fascinating to see this and in such detail that that we could go so deep into their lives and read about their thoughts and their feelings and their secret relationship. They were even secretly married. Uh, although no, again, nobody knew about it. As far as everybody knew, it was just a man living with his maid, and and it was fascinating to see this. You know, like you mentioned, like when earlier you were talking about knowing these historical figures were gay, and I think that 
there's really there's not quite that sense of history among among at least among straight kinky people that um and that's what I'm hoping this book can help fill in that we can understand that there is a history that there were people in the past who were recognizably of the same type and that we can understand that we that there is a history that there is a tradition and and that we can learn from and I think that's an important to recognizing the kinky people as a as a culture and as an identity gay and straight there's an interesting point in the book where you uh, profile Samuel Stewart who was kind of a yeah. gay renegade in Chicago I believe in the Midwest in the 40s and 50s after the Second World War, knew and worked with Albert Kinsey. Um, and he was very much into S&M. And there's this point where, you know, this was before there were BDSM shops. This was before there were, you know, FetLife Online, before you could go order a slave collar uh, on Amazon to be delivered to your house in an unmarked package. And Stewart is very upset when S&M transitions, when it becomes, as you say in the book, codified and ritualized. What was gained yeah. in that process of codification and ritualization, and what was lost? Well, what was gained, I think, is that there is knowledge that is built up about safe practices, mm-hmm. uh, which is important. And I think that there's a, been important, and that's a sort of a thread that I identified, which is like how, how and when people learned about this. Uh, that's what one of the big things that like groups like the Oil and Spiegel Society in New York and uh, the Society of Janus in San Francisco did is that they helped train a new generation of people, of kinky people in techniques instead of leaving them to sort of figure things out by trial and error. And the consequences of error, the consequences of error when you're doing BDSM can be really high. So if there is some sort of built up knowledge base that that can be transmitted laterally, because it's not like kinksters raise kinksters. It's not like you would want your parents to do this download uh, or or, include this in their birds and the bees talk. But for that to be transferred, that knowledge to be transferred laterally, that's really important. But uh, figures like Samuel Stewart uh, really objected when BDSM became what a lot of BDSMers today call play. He says it's fun and games now. It's not the stakes are gone. And that really upset Stewart. I think there's been multiple generations of new contingents of kinky people arriving. I mean, Stewart was doing SM play before what many people called the old guard, which was a post-war or phenomenon. He was like before them. So I think it's, I, I try not to get hung up on the idea that, that, um, you know, the scene's been taken over by posers. I don't think there's always going to be a new contingent coming in and there's always going to be people grumbling about that. It was interesting to read Stuart grumbling about that because he sounds like somebody standing on the side of the ballroom at IML, International Mr. Leather, in Chicago complaining about the guys in harnesses who just got their first harness. Yep. And I've, yeah. we've all heard those complaints before. In, in, even in my own career, I started in the early 90s. Um, when there was the rot, which was sort of like the early burst of the people getting involved by, uh, uh, you know, mo- the internet via the dial up modem days. I've seen things come and go since then. I've seen rope become very, very popular and become it's so much so that at the parties, there's like a kind of a contingent of rope, uh, bondage enthusiasts who don't really mix with other, other activities. And I, I don't want to complain about that. That's just the way it goes. And it's, and if that's what they're into. And so I'm not going to be an old man shape. I'm old enough to be an old man sh- shaking my fist at the cloud. But I'm not going <laughs> to 
Is there some? Yeah. Is, there, is there some erotic tension lost when S and M is culturally accepted in the mainstream? When a company like Amazon is selling S and M gear on their website to no complaints from oh, any culturally conservative quarters, is there some? Is there some trade off there? When you know, part of what fuels the desire, part part of what fuels the eroticism of it is the taboo. And if the taboo goes away, is BDSM less compelling erotically? I'm not so sure. I mean, like, like I remember reading David Stein, who was like the tail end. Uh, he was the guy who who coined safe, sane, and consensual. And he sort of was at the tail end of the, what you might call the classic gay leather man era, where like, if you had those desires, the only way you could, the, the way to go about fulfilling them was if you were lucky enough to live in a major city, you had to know somebody who could tell you about this bar and you had to, which, you know, and you had to go in there and figure out some arcane code of, of sartorial code and how to indicate your interests and figure out this, this elaborate system and stuff. And, um, and if you were, you know, not close to one of those places, you were out of luck. And so I think there is always, there's always, there's belief that before I got in, there was this golden age of the real player and everybody that's come after me is just a poser who had it easy. I think that there's so much more and better information now. There's so much more information and better groups going on. There's, there's, if you, you don't have to live in a major city to be, to have access to a kink scene, there's a good chance there's one nearby. Um, people have a better understanding of consent. People have a better understanding of safety. Um, so I don't, I don't feel, I mean, like I, I, there are times when I feel nostalgic for the, my fantasy version of, you know, what New York was like in the eighties and the, I mean, I consider myself lucky enough to have lived, to have been able to see the vault and the Hellfire Club in 90s New York before they were gone. Goddamn Giuliani. But I don't indulge in nostalgia for it. I try to live in the, in the now. And in the now, people who are out there who are kinky, who'd like to know their cultural history, can pick up a lover's pinch of cultural history of sadomasochism by Peter Tupper who won the 2017 Joff Maines Nonfiction Award from the National Leather Association for Editing Our Lives, Our History, Consensual Master-Slave Relationships from Ancient Times to the 21st Century, another book on the history of BDSM. And he's the co-founder of Metro Vancouver Kink, a nonprofit educational and social BDSM group up in Vancouver. He blogs at historyofbdsm.com. Peter Tupper, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Dan. All right, before we get to your response calls and your feedback, your tweets. Melanie tweets a million thank yous to at fake Dan Savage for the way you answered the Arrow dude's question on Savage Lovecast this week. That was the aromantic guy. Femme Arrow here, and I've never felt so seen and understood. Well, thank you, Melanie. Thank you for that lovely compliment, and I'm glad you felt seen and understood on my podcast. Aaron Marks tweets, for the mixed race couple on episode 658 of the Savage Lovecast, seeking guest stars, insisting they are only attracted to black or white guys is limited, outdated, and dismissive. The country is filled with an unlimited and yummy variety of mixes and combos far beyond the binary. Explore. Couldn't agree with you more, Aaron. Michael Horler tweets, 
At Fake Dan Savage, there is still a surprising amount of porn on Tumblr. They don't seem to be making a strenuous effort or they just gave up. Love the show. Love the Savage Love cast. That's what my husband tells me. He tells me he can still find porn on Tumblr. I don't know what it says about me that the porn I used to look at at Tumblr, all that shit's gone. And finally, Thomas Huddleston tweets at Fake Dan Savage. I knew from the Savage Lovecast that we agreed on everything, but now I learned that you too are a monarchist. Time for a rant on the value of a constitutional monarchy and good tiara hair. Yes, I am. I have come out of the closet repeatedly as a constitutional monarchist. Uh, talked about that on Blabbermouth, which is the Strangers weekly political podcast hosted by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders. Me and Eli and other Stranger Staffers debate the issues of the day, the issues of the week, and arts and culture, too. Every week on Blabbermouth, you should be listening to that show as well, particularly if you love my little rants at the top of the podcast. And now your response calls. Hi, this is in response to the guy in episode 658 who had the roommate who believes she is psychic. Uh, she had a self-described psychic break and since then has been hearing ever stronger voices in her head. That doesn't sound like somebody who believes in magic. That sounds like somebody who is being overcome with the early symptoms of schizophrenia. He's probably not in any serious danger himself. The mentally ill are not generally dangerous to anyone but their, their own selves. But he certainly shouldn't participate in it. He should probably move out. And if he can, he should try to convince her to seek medical help because she certainly is in danger from her own illness. You know, what kind of struck me was he was saying, oh, these psych there's psychics everywhere and in L.A., on the West Coast, everyone's into magic. That's, that's not really true. What there is a lot of in L.A. is aspiring actors trying to turn every single person they meet into a vehicle for them to obtain a successful acting career. And that's what you're doing with this person who's clearly in a state of mental distress. So just don't be that guy. Don't size up every single person you meet and think, how are they going to make me into a famous actor? Because that's what L.A. is full of, and that's um, it's just not the person you want to be. Hey, this is for the straight guy on episode 658 who wants to have gay leather daddy sex with his lesbian friend. So Dan is right. And you should leave your friend alone. She's a lesbian. She doesn't want to fuck guys. But also, dude, there are so many thirsty, kinky, horny, bottomy trans guys who would be totally into you. And I know because I'm one of them. As long as you're respectful and polite, lots of us would love to fuck you. Uh, Also, identity is complicated, like Dan says. But if you do end up playing out this fantasy with trans guys and you're a guy, you're kind of not 100% straight anymore. So, uh, welcome to the LGBTQ community. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you all for your calls. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. We're gearing up for our one-minute wonder show. That's where your questions are under a minute and my answers have to be under two minutes. If you've got a one-minute or less question, get it on the show. Call us, 206-302-2064, and record your one-minute or less question for our upcoming one-minute wonder show. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk you and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. 
Thanks for being here.